A dictionary definition of the word context is the interrelated conditions in which something exists or occurs. AQMB's Artist Statement podcast is a conversation series exploring the fresh perspectives in art generated by these changing contexts, politically, culturally, socially, other. It features artists and thinkers orbiting our world, where we chat in response to developments in technology, communication and beyond. I'm Associate Editor Jared Davis, and on today's episode I talk with Lawrence Leck. Lawrence is an artist working across video, music and VR, whose interrelated projects build speculative fictions addressing questions around AI, authenticity and geopolitics, as imagined through the future of cities like London and Singapore. In a 2017 interview on AQ&B, Lawrence spoke about how when confronted by empty cities or ruins it can lead to epiphanies about ourselves. This awareness of a social aspect to the cityscape, no doubt drawing from his training as an architect, continues to run through his practice today. He's since shown notable works at London's 180 The Strand for the major Transformer, a Rebirth of Wonder Group exhibition last year, as well as a solo exhibition at Sadie Cole's HQ. Watching his video work Sinofuturism in 2016, I remember being struck by its poignant post-truth themes, and the huge amount of political change since has only made this work more topical. I've been eager to chat with Lawrence about his ideas as they move from science fiction to fact. I wanted to start by just painting a bit of a picture for our listeners um, of your work. Um, Obviously, you're working across video and VR and music, uh, and in that you've built a bit of a science fiction universe of your own, I suppose, um, with reoccurring themes and characters and motifs. So I I might just ask quickly if you could give us a bit of a synopsis of some of the key themes or some of the the reoccurring characters like uh, the Farsight Corporation and Sinofuturists, just maybe a bit of an essential primer for the uninitiated into the Lawrence Lake world? Sure. I mean, without going into too much detail, basically, I'm kind of using science fiction as, I guess, like a kind of allegory for things I observe today. Because I guess about starting about five or six years ago, when I started making virtual worlds, I was interested in this, I guess, synthetic kind of collage-based nature of the medium. Um, As well, you know, growing up with different kinds of synthetic worlds, whether that's, you know, kind of fictional universe in a science fiction sense or in a kind of video game world-building sense or in a cinematic sense. It's something that I've always been interested in, not just in the sense that it's, you know, this idea of fantasy as like an escapist reality, but somehow it's more of a kind of like um, reflection of the world as, as, as we see it. So this kind of trilogy of films, I suppose, which is Sinofuturism, 1839 to 2046, um, is the first one in 2016, and Geomancer in 2017, and an Idol, which I made last year. There's kind of recurrent themes of the future and also the, I guess, embodiment of automation, where AI is not necessarily just a technological artifact, as you know, has, has been often seen in science fiction and popular media, but really thinking about the idea of the subjectivity of AI. And of course, in, I guess, art and literature, there's a long history of personifying uh, natural phenomena, uh, whether it's, was it the pathetic fallacy in kind of making, you know, rivers, mountains, and so on, evoke and mirror human emotions, which is a really important idea of, I guess, both like romantic poetry and, you know, the sublime in art or, landscape painting from many different regions of the world or animism as embodied in different artifacts. So I was interested in this kind of evocation of AI as the non-human. And it's not just um, this idea of post-humanism, transhumanism or non-humanism that's interesting to me. But like I said before, it's this allegorical nature of a uh, a non-human subject, really. So, of course, it could be a forest, mountain, stream, river, or machine in this case. So, this idea of um, humanity is the wrong word because, of course, a lot of it is a criti- critique mm-hmm. of humanism. But a sense of uh, how should I say I, animism maybe is a more appropriate term for it that I was trying to build. And so various characters that pervade these works, like Sinofuturism, which looks at uh, essentially the specter of Chinese technology and industrialization from this idea of, uh, I guess, subjective embodiment within an AI and a Chinese industrialization, to Geomancer, which uh, is a CGI animation 
that looks at uh, an AI who comes down to Singapore in, in the year 2065 wanting to be an artist, and the sequel to that, Idol, which is AI and Idol, which looks at a, uh, basically the tagline is, a fading superstar enlists an AI to make a comeback. So in all of these, I'm kind of wrapping up these uh, geopolitical ideas within uh, a narrative that's really about a kind of experiential journey. So in Sinofuturism, it's more the kind of framework of a, I guess, Adam Curtis style video essay, which is as much, uh, which is as much uh, conspiracy theory as it is documentary. And so the nature of truth lies somewhere in between those two things. In Geomancer, it's more or less a kind of coming of age story, um, which is the kind of framework of you know this voyage of self discovery, which again is a very uh, old format for storytelling you know whether it's this journey but also a journey of the self but it's also kind of ridden with cliches i'm very interested in since um is it basically goethe's um sorrows of young werther which is the first bildungsroman like a novel of character development that also has its imprint on many different uh ways of fictionalizing the artist self you know this self-mythologizing idea that essentially every biography engages with you know this idea that uh like art emerges from this discrete series of logical steps which of course it, it doesn't at all in, in my experience and then idol which kind of contrasts with geomancer because geomancer is more about somebody on the way up i guess mm -hmm. idol is more about someone on the way down which you know like this kind of tragic tragedy idea which i found kind of interesting as well yeah um, we'll get to Idol in a bit, but um, uh, one of the, uh, I guess, sort of a bit of the iconography in Idol features in your most recent installation, perhaps uh, at the at 180 The Strand last year, uh, and uh, you, you've recently released this um, album version of it, Temple OST. I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Um, before our conversation, I was watching some of the music videos that you produced for it, or the videos associated with it, um, Dead Souls and Hermitage, uh, and they are CGI animations in your style. And in them, that you've, you've created these future sort of landscapes that are dotted with all sorts of different aspects of our present-day cultural imaginary. So there's the, the temple, uh, underground London train station, abandoned. Uh, there's underground train cars, I guess a bit... Uh, Planet of the Apes style, um, uh, sort of cultural relics poking out of the ground, and, of course, abandoned nightclubs. And these sorts of things now, of course, when you were producing this work last year, um, wouldn't have been on your mind, but now there's a real sense of the uncanny uh, in regards to the last couple months and what's sort of happened, um, not necessarily just with uh, the coronavirus causing uh, actual sort of cultural landmarks to become abandoned and so we get that uncanny canny, canny sense looking at your work and our everyday life now but also uh, just in terms of how at little bits of our uh, daily lives such as nightclubbing uh, we've taken some of these uh, elements and sort of transcribed them into virtual worlds through IMVU and through Minecraft now in the press release uh, I guess pre pre-COVID press release um, for Temple OST, it does say, you know, you're interested in exploring the future of memory in an age of simulation. So that's, that's very poignant now. So I was wondering how recent events have shaped how you think about um, some, of, some of these works or your own works. Um, mm. Sure. I think, I mean, the idea of, you know, the future of memory is really interesting because, of course, you know, language and art, generally speaking, are ways to... I mean, from myths to, you know, Hollywood, let's say, are ways to, like, perpetuate memory, you know, or to have, to trace the continuation of certain ideas. And in virtual worlds, like the one for Temple OST and previous ones like Europa Monomore and so on, like, they are a way to reconfigure what time we're in essentially i mean not in any kind of grandiose way i mean one thing i was always interested in with the idea of um you know studying architecture is that for some reason i mean a very definite reason but basically you know in western architecture at least in the 18th century the birth of history as in the birth of the discipline of history um really coincided with the iconography of the ruin so you know at the same time like archaeology and all this kind of like 
I guess, pseudo-colonial impulse to categorize and catalog the past arose at exactly the same time as an awareness of the mortality of any civilization. So, for example, you know, I don't know, like, if the Renaissance is about the rebirth of that which has been dead, there's also, at the same time, the the creation of a consciousness that the present is just as vulnerable as, you know, whatever civilization there was in the past. And, of course, it's, you know, not exclusive to any kind of Western civilization. You get the Mayans, the Incas, Angkor Wat, all this kind of stuff. So, the... I guess the poignancy of the sense of loss or nostalgia, nostalgia, which I think means a kind of longing for home, essentially, which, you know, who even knows what that means anymore, is is incredibly vibrant and for some reason in the collective consciousness um, rears its head whenever that past or the present is threatened. And of course, sometimes it can um, result in, you know, uh, uh, reactionary politics or nationalism or or this kind of xenophobia. But at the same time, in terms of the, um, I guess, the emotions it evokes, it's like longing for something. I'm not entirely sure what, and especially because, you know, it's 2020 now, not 1820 or whatever. So these questions is something I'm interested in just exploring in whatever way suits the project. Yeah, the, the sort of idea of loss and longing, um, I, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot in your work about Mark Fisher's writing on ontology uh, and sort of the way that and this relates to what you're talking about with architecture, interestingly, that this kind of longing or this this um, this, this sense of yearning was always with him, at least for me in my readings of it, this kind of melancholia of moving out of the modernist period, out of the modern period into the sort of postmodernist period. Um, and, you know, for him, he's got these writings on popular modernism um, that he writes of, uh, like, such as the BBC's programming in the 1970s, where this is sort of a, a, a collective state-run project, at least, uh, you know, in this sort of modernist utopian sense of towards a, a, a sort of collective purpose. And then with the, this sort of shift into postmodernism and, of course, the sort of gutting of, of of state broadcasting. There's this kind of sense of loss of that and a bit of a melancholia. Um, and it's, it's great that you're bringing up architecture because I think we're in this really interesting stage um, just in relation in our relation generally to to modernism. Um, I don't know if you, you you maybe recall. I mean, this happened just before coronavirus, so. Yeah, it's completely been lost, um, and it's it's of the lesser of, of the madnesses that have come out of Trump's presidency this year, I think. But uh, maybe in February it was he had this proposal to make federal buildings beautiful again, um, which was basically a, a return to neoclassical architecture. And I think this is a really fascinating thing. It's not coming from a postmodern idea of trying to, you know, draw from past styles and, um, you know, uh, the sort of sense that history never really kind of fades. You kind of it's it's also it's more coming from a bit of a uh, a sort of conservative nostalgia um, for empire, and of course I can't really help but think of the sort of Nazi um, neo modernist architecture. That was the first thing that came through my mind. Mm-hmm. I suppose, yeah. I mean, I think the again, I guess at least in the so called new world, you know, the idea of architecture is really like. A, you know, the imposition of civilization on the untamed West. And, you know, of course, this is well known. Um, but I think also Trump, the, I mean, you know, the, the relationship between power and architecture is incredibly strong. And I think, um, I can't remember, is it, yeah, Thomas Jefferson was also an architect, what, the second president of the U.S. My American history is not very good. And he, I mean, very deliberately set about uh designing and building a kind of model uh i guess a modern sorry a model humanist environment that like kind of embodied the you know freedom and prosperity for all kind of ethos of of the nation um but one thing about modernism is that it's again treated obviously very differently regionally so I would often reflect on, you know, kind of growing up as a kid in Hong Kong and Singapore, and of course modern architecture has completely different symbolic values to how it is in the UK. Because I think modernism in the UK has much more, of, I guess, a tragic history because it's associated with 
um, the promise, the incomplete promise of social change, essentially, that start that you know began with post-war rebuilding and kind of morphed into a different uh, into a different uh, enterprise under you know the 80s and Thatcherism and so on. Whereas in Singapore, it was more related to nation building, I suppose, because Singapore, which got its independence uh, from Malaya, I mean separated from Malaysia, in uh, 1965, that was, it, it took a kind of different trajectory on the relationship between nationalism, modernism, and the kind of growth of the state, um, which is one of the things I was reflecting on in Geomancer, and the reason mm -hmm. it's set in the year 2065 is because it's the centennial of the nation. So I kind of wanted to contrast the birth of the individual as embodied in the satellite with the point where a nation becomes, you know, it's no longer a young nation or a middle-aged nation. They kind of become essentially uh, an increasingly authoritarian one. So this contrast between independence of a country and independence of a individual is something really at the core of what these explorations are. Um, yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, on that topic, I guess, uh, Geomancer, uh, I, I think it would be interesting to talk about the sequel, um, Idol, um, which also it takes this same plot line, uh, and it's a feature-length film that you first showed last year at Sadie Cole's HQ in London. Um, would you mind, I mean, I guess you've started it a little bit with uh, talking about Geomancer, but if you could give us a little bit of a synopsis maybe of the film um, for our listeners, that might, that might be good. So um, it's set in the weeks before the 2065 eSports Olympics, which is basically the equivalent of, you know, having a uh, Super Bowl halftime performance, which is the most, you know, widely televised event in the world right now. And so I think around a few weeks after I saw it, oh, sorry, I'll just finish it. So basically mm -hmm. Diva, who is a fading superstar employed by the entertainment company Farsight um, has to make a comeback during the halftime performance at this World Esports Ceremony. And she's kind of stuck because she wants to write a certain kind of music, but of course the, um, the um, polls say differently. And so she's kind of caught between having to make essentially more commercial stuff and what she wants to make. And so she enlists the help of an AI, in this case Geomancer, to help her ghostwrite the songs. So it's looking at obviously you know this kind of um the model of the music industry of course it's about music as its subject and the industry but really it's about the notion of um i guess the sacrifice of creativity essentially not just the sacrifice of oh you know i want to uh create something original and this kind of egotistical sense of things but in this very real sense that the the star essentially sacrifices the self for um, for distribution, um, and this was from a line of thinking that was thinking about how the notion of like the star celebrity evolved from you know it's kind of let's say birth during big screen Hollywood productions mm -hmm. to uh, you know modern day uh, influencer culture on you know YouTube, Instagram, or TikTok or whatever. The sense that the individual is atomized and I don't just mean this in a psychological sense but in a uh, digitally distributed way that demands constant content production by the individual in order to you know fuel the desire for more engagement or more closeness with the audience so where's the previous notion of you know the star of the silver screen let's say was about this um infinite distance between the star and the audience of course now it's ever so you know it's you can kind of reach out and touch them so to speak so idol was not just about music but it was also about uh this this loss this sense of touch or closeness between the kind of producer and the people who might uh, witness that um and that's kind of what the film's about <clears throat> and so it's also it's a feature-length CGI film, but it's also divided into 13 tracks, basically. And during the course of the film, Diva is working on her album, but also by the end of the film, she's released it at the ceremony. So it's kind of designed as a loop that makes it a bit ambiguous whether 
the whole film itself is essentially a fancy marketing exercise, you know, a feature-length music video, or if it's a kind of film that unfolds in real time. So there's a kind of blurring of narrative time structures that I was kind of using for that as well. Hmm. That's interesting. And a really big theme of it is authenticity. Um, it's interesting you bring up this idea of closeness, because um, I guess in the sort of sense of the romantic idea of authenticity and sincerity, it's about this kind of um, uh, this sort of closeness to a real human expression um, in the sense of as well being unbounded by commercial interests, but also through mediation, I guess, that you're getting the raw, um, real human expression of, of the other artist and the author. Uh, and it's something that's still persistent, but I think has really uh, been thrown into a bit of the idea of authenticity after the 1990s, maybe, in, in music culture, um, has sort of been thrown into a little bit of a, a crisis, maybe, not necessarily in a in, uh, maybe it's a very pejorative term to use, but I'm wondering what your interests in authenticity in the present are, if you have any thoughts on this, and particularly as you sort of explore in the film, like how AI kind of compounds our anxieties and our sort of desires for authenticity. Sure. Um, I think in the film there's a line where Diva says to Geomancer when trying to get them to help her write the songs is, you know, I want you to help me plagiarize myself, right? So I had been looking at a few AI-assisted music production things, and I thought it was something kind of perverse because, of course, for whatever sublime, amazing purposes AI or any technology has, very often it's completely banal how it's been, you know, um, instrumentalized, really. So a lot of the AI... Um, music production companies, instead of trying to write something good, they actually just try to write something that incredibly bland. It's kind of the opposite. Mm -hmm. So to essentially create copyright-free or DRM-free music for ads, brands, you know, your new avocado store, or anything like that. So with this idea, I kind of thought that maybe the, um, instead of arriving at this idea of originality or authenticity or closeness, the equivalent to what might be called originality a hundred years ago is actually kind of did a 180 degree turn. So it's now just about being as undetectable as everything else. And I think this pervades many different ideas in the film. So for example, um, every human or humanoid in the film wears a kind of full body covering. And the idea for that is that in the future of fully automated surveillance and total surveillance, the only thing left is disguise, you know? So instead of it being about a world of self-expression, it's about a world of self-concealment. And part of what is self-concealment in an artistic idiom then becomes creating something as generic as possible. Um, so instead of trying to create a distinctive sound or a distinctive look or a distinctive style, which basically pervades most art forms, it's about creating the maximum anonymity and by creating the maximum anonymity, you could therefore, in, in theory, create the largest possible fan base because then lots of people can relate to you, you know, like that's why there's so many love songs and breakup songs and this and that because it's a universal feeling. So, you know, I was just thinking about ways to integrate this into the kind of structure of the music itself. Um, so Diva's singing voice is made by the... Uh, Yamaha software, uh, Vocaloid software, which is a mm. kind of syn synthetic voice software, and the name of that is Cyber Diva 2. So it's Cyber Diva 1 was used in Geomancer for the soundtrack, and Cyber Diva 2 was an idol because it, you know, had been upgraded in the meantime. Um, and this idea of originality or authenticity was also something, you know, I was thinking about constantly, because of course, you know, you grow up and you think, I want to do something good or something different. And the more you learn about what other people have done before you, the more, I guess, you get more humility about what the parameters are of, like, how you can experiment, really. Um, and I realized, again, that a lot of the kind of great works of art or whatever that I had grown up with were, uh, you know, they're part of the canon, right? They're part of the canon that becomes legitimized by its replication in academia, in critical theory, in art history, in music history, and all the rest of it. 
And that's a t obviously a tiny part of what has been made. Um, so in Idol, I was looking actually at previous Id idioms of uh, anonymous music, for example, folk music. And so the last song on Idol, which is called In My Prime, is actually a... Um, it's based on a version recorded by the British folk band Pentangle. But it's, you know, it's a folk song, so it's mm. anonymous. So I was kind of really interested in this fine line between anonymity and, and, and superstardom, you know? So which one mm. is more individual or, or original? And it's kind of, you know, in, I mean, definitely inconclusive. Yeah. I suppose TikTok's almost like a kind of a new folk in a sense of the way that... Um, almost the the virality of TikTok or way sort of sections of songs get taken. It's not almost about the original the original track in itself, but it's how it sort of takes over sort of gets memified across the culture and reinterpreted. That's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, I, I'm quite interested in what algorithms are doing to the songwriting process in popular music. Um, and that's something you, you touch on definitely in Idol, like this writing music for the purpose of going viral on TikTok where the little 20 second clip that's that's um, quite memeable is, is all you really want. Or um, also like playlist culture such as Spotify and Apple Music, how this is kind of flattening genre a little bit in an interesting way. When you log on to Spotify, you're not necessarily going to get um, channels devoted to certain genres, but rather you'll get kind of mood. This is the chill playlist. This is the gym playlist, etc. Um, so, yeah, I, I was wondering what your thoughts are on this, on, on uh, AI and algorithms and the songwriting process. Yeah, totally. I think at the end of the, um, I think the last day of the Sadie Coles exhibition, I had a talk with uh, Steve Goodman, who, who plays the, um, I mean, the evil record company boss <laughs> in, in Idol, basically. Yeah. And I was researching it a bit, and this idea of obviously the algorithm um, modifying how music is made or techno you know I guess a kind of technological determinism for the form of an of, for an art form of course um, with the vinyl record you know you had singles lasting three minutes because that was the limitation of a seven inch vinyl record um, played at 45 rpm and uh, and of course who is is it that record was that size because three minutes is the perfect pop song or did you know the pop song evolve to fit that vinyl record mm -hmm. of course it's a two-way thing but i had read this kind of uh article analyzing what's the song despacito mm -hmm. which was what is it like huge hugest hit of 2018 or something yeah and it talked about how usually pop music you know um the the formula of of it is you create uh, a hook at the intro, then you do the verse, and you go back to the hook in the chorus, and and so on. Whereas with songs like Despacito, it doesn't do the same thing. What it does is that the first 20 seconds actually act more like a movie trailer. So the first 20 seconds act like um, the greatest hits of the rest of the three-minute song. So, for example, if you want to signify that it's going to have a kind of latin flavor you know you have some horns you have the right kind of percussion but it doesn't do longer than two seconds of that it's mm -hmm. just half a second of 50 different things instead of 10 seconds three times so it's a very different uh i mean it's a different algorithm i don't mean a machine learning algorithm but a different kind of formula in order to signify to the audience whether the audience is a human or a machine that this is what if you commit to the next three minutes of your life listening to this thing, this is what you will do. So it's a way to create some kind of uh, increase the probability, shall we say, that you will still listen, which, of course, mm -hmm. in the attention economy is everything. And what's interesting is that it works both for the human listener and for the machine listener because, I mean, I, th I think the reason that mood you know, for example, you're saying things are categorized by mood rather than by genre, is that the way a machine listens to music by, you know, tempo is one of the easiest things to classify because you can see where all the peaks are. Um, you can see if there's percussion in the song or not. So it's very easy to tell whether something is slow and chill out or something is, you know, hyperactive GABA. That's incredibly easy to do with very simple analytical software. So... It's, you know, it's got nothing to do with what you might think of 
uh, genre or voice or the intonation of things. It's much more to do with broad strokes. How fast is it? How loud are the peaks and so on? Um, and of course, as the algorithm aids in the laziness of uh, passive listening, I mean, something everyone does, um, then music, like was speculated a long time ago, becomes more and more part of the background. You know, it's perpetually playing everywhere all the time. Um, and so part of the interest with Idol, actually, besides it being about music and creativity, is that, you know, music is in some sense like the ultimate commodity because you can spread it so far, so thinly with such a huge degree of control over information that you're getting back from the listener, but also still have the potential to associate a star personality, a singer, a composer, whatever, with that music as well. So it's really interesting as a, I guess, allegory of a kind of data-driven age as well with music, a data-driven art age, I guess. Yeah, so interesting. Um, I, I can't help but bring up Peter Thiel. I mean, you, you did mention um, uh, just briefly the, the evil record executive um, in your uh, in Idol, uh, voiced by Steve Goodman. Uh, you named this executive uh, CEO Thiel. Um, no relation. No, no, no relation. relation. <laughs> yeah, not, not a slight on um, Steve Goodman's management of Hyperdub. Um, it is uh, so Peter Thiel for listeners uh, unfamiliar is the CEO of um, Palantir, which is a big data analytics company. He was also one of the co-founders of um, uh, PayPal, along with Elon Musk. Uh, he's quite interested in seasteading, which is building islands to evade tax, etc. And also, I think. Um, was quite involved in um, the the neo reaction movement, this racist online movement. So he's he's more or less a, a real life comic book villain. <laughs> uh, and now with coronavirus, Palantir, they're they're a massive company, are getting increasingly massive, uh, and they've been getting big contracts with the likes of um, uh, like the NHS, the National Health, National Health Service uh, in the UK. Uh, so I wanted to ask what your uh, and. By big data analytics, they're, of course, involved in surveillance. So they've been uh, working on apps for, I think, things like contact tracing, et cetera. But really, they, they, they use um, data analytics um, also for military purposes and for police. Um, so I, I was wondering what your thoughts are on the developments in surveillance um, and, and data analysis with AI, uh, and particularly maybe in light of, of coronavirus. You know, we do, everyone's sort of talking about contact tracing now, but... There's no doubt that these technologies um, can be further applied to, say, social credit scores or these kinds of things or immunity passports, but also perhaps um, tracking down people that have attended protests uh, and these kinds of things. Sure. I mean, it's, um, I mean, it's a topic of like, huge interest for me um, and research for my next kind of film. And I think... Obviously, the thing about surveillance is, as, as we've seen with coronavirus, is that it's incredibly regionally specific. And sometimes the, uh, rational, the rationale of why, for example, um, contact tracing may work better in Singapore or South Korea, but the same thing cannot apply, possibly apply to the UK or, or Western Europe, is um, it's incredibly I ideological, shall we say. Um, I think one of the things with uh, Palantir, and I don't know specifically how they're involved with coronavirus contact tracing, but you know, there's a they indulge in a certain joy of evil, which is fascinating because you know their operating system, their program is called Gotham, right? Mm. So <laughs> they they have the model, and it is the worst vision of a future urban society, right? It's like um, <clears throat> unparalleled crime, a kind of incompetent police force, and the need for constant retribution from, I mean, in this case, Batman. So um, the Palantir question is, and, and the idea of predictive policing, I mean, there's a, there's a um, startup with a program called PredPol, predictive policing. And this, um, this fear is really well uh, explored by um, this uh, writer, Jackie Wang, in uh, her book, um, Castle of Capitalism. But my interest i guess is in in america the situation is i mean it's uh, like heartbreaking and volatile and wrapped up in so many different layers of 
nationally specific issues and of course universally specific as well but um what i had been looking more at is i guess to some extent you know the chinese context of um of data-driven information collection uh, so, for example, uh, TikTok is a Chinese-owned corporation. Um, it's a subsidiary of a larger corporation, and TikTok was formerly called uh, Musical.ly, Musical.ly. That was about actually creating, uh, essentially, uh, copyright-free music, right? So the boundary between entertainment, data gathering, and, you know, whatever uh, non-disclosure, I mean, data gathering agreements is incredibly elastic um, so basically the question is how to what extent can we um, impose uh, essentially a regionally specific view of surveillance onto different regions you know for example being in London I witness a lot of media coverage about how things operate in other parts of the world and until now it's I hadn't actually, strangely enough, hadn't quite realized how much ideological bias there is against uh, a big brother society. I mean, mm -hmm. from um, and and uh, so much um, uh, ideological bias against a uh, big brother society, of course. But at the same time, at least amongst the left, a craving for socialism, mm. right? So this idea of like this, you know, the strong state and the nanny state, but at the same time wanting to be free, like I want to be free to make my choice, and because the way that it's been um, kind of explained in many of the news outlets I read has been one of um, just the anti-authoritarian bias, which overcomes the sheer inhumanism of not caring about individual human lives seems to be a very big contradiction basically mm. um but of course you know lies damn lies in statistics so i don't know uh without researching further what um what the i guess moral morally right position is if mm. you know that can be said to exist yeah yeah Perhaps it's a good time to talk a little bit about um, Sun of Futurism, eight, eight, 1839 to 2046, which uh, you, you introduced um, briefly at, at the beginning of our chat. Um, I, it, as a, it, it's sort of part documentary, part conspiracy theory. Um, I really wanted to talk with you a little bit about it because um, I'm quite interested in this. Uh, idea of conspiracy as methodology that you use a little bit. Um, it was released in 2016, so it's quite poignant that you're using the language of conspiracy, I guess I call it, at the time. Um, you know, post-truth was named the word of the year. Donald Trump is elected. We're getting a sense of how algorithms are skewing narratives in terms of the best narrative or the most convenient narrative for us, not necessarily the true one. And, of course, Adam Curtis had that huge documentary um, uh, was it hypernormalization in 2016 that mm -hmm. went kind of viral? Um, what are your thoughts on conspiracy as a methodology? Do you, do you have any thoughts or, or, yeah, how, you, or I, how you use mm. it specific to Sinofuturism maybe? Yeah, um, I think, I mean, in Frederick Jameson's sense, like the conspiracy, it's, in, it's a way to construct a linear sequence of causality about the world based on incomplete information. I think so based on the fact that you know let's say no individual can possibly fathom the incredibly complex way the world functions we have to build our own belief networks um, in order to operate basically and so you know for Jameson like the idea of cognitive mapping was uh, about reconstructing a kind of landscape of ideas in order to navigate the world basically and so in his studies of why did why were there so many conspiracy theories films during the 70s right so from a sociological point of view he imagines that it's because there was a distrust and talking about america in this case there's a distrust in the state after nixon and watergate after the vietnam war um people no longer believed what the government was saying so in this sense this idea of like a post-truth mediatized 
battleground really as an analogy for society kind of I think at least for me comes out of this um, the the way it becomes uh, regionally specific for me as well is that the it's not just the way that you know a conspiracy can be a related to a post-truth kind of thing but then I also realized how colored my viewpoint of Southeast Asia was for example so you know you have the Vietnam War you have I mean like post-colonial things in in so-called Indochina you know Vietnam Cambodia Laos um, Burma uh, Singapore and Malaysia but at the same time the representation in cinema was you know kind of dominated by the Vietnam War films and of course in Vietnam they call the Vietnam War the American War because before that there was a French war of uh, independence so this kind of cultural relative relativism even though I you know really grew up with it I only started becoming self-conscious of around this time of uh, when bias was talked about because previously I'd never really been interested in identity politics I don't think as an individual I'm that interesting it's just like as an observer it's these things that I can I can pick out and identify so when I kind of had this link with the gap between the, let's say, representation of the jungle from media and so on, then I kind of extrapolated that into the representation of AI and China as a, as a whole. Because, of course, I'm part of a Chinese diaspora. And in some ways, like diasporic communities maintain the traditions of the so-called motherland or homeland stronger than those who stay in those countries themselves for certain reasons, including like, you know, preserving uh, national culture, national identity, a sense of solidarity, and so on. So when I started observing the parallel ways in which uh, basically Chinese industrialization was being portrayed, both in its good and bad forms around actually since, you know, even long before 2016, like either China will save the world or China's going to destroy the world. It's exactly the same as people saying, AI is going to save the world, AI is going to destroy the world, or robots are going to save the world and destroy it, or Foxconn workers are like robots, or Foxconn workers are actually like human beings, like, obviously. Um, so I basically realized around the time I was writing the script for Geomancer in 2016 that these two things are really a mirror image of, of each other. The huge bias, both for and against the so-called other, in this case Chinese industrialization or, or AI, um, had so much in common so you know the reason I made the video essay sign of futurism was quite simply because it didn't exist I was kind of amazed that it didn't because of course a lot was being written about internet art from China or Afrofuturism and its discontents let's say or about different kinds of futurism so um, that's kind of like the spirit that the essay came out of and also in relation to the idea of it being a conspiracy theory because it's either there, it's either completely reinforced by everything you, you see, which is the mentality of a, of a paranoid person, basically, or it, do, it completely doesn't exist, which is uh, another way of uh, seeing it as well. It's a, it completely doesn't exist, and it's just something all in your own head, which is essentially what this post-truth landscape is about. Mm. And you break down this conspiracy of sign of futurism into certain different aspects of, of contemporary culture in China. Uh, and one of them I'd like to talk about is um, copying, which is one of the sections of the film. Um, uh, in the film, you're looking a lot at uh, not necessarily counterfeits, but the manufacture of goods in China that would be supposedly, I guess, in the West, uh, copyright infringements, so say cars that uh, a model of a car produced in China that might look identical to a BMW, um, these kinds of things. So I was wondering what your thoughts are on the roles of brands today, because this is an interesting topic that that sort of comes up in this relation. So brand names that really trade off of authenticity, of being the real BMW. Uh, and if this is a kind of diminishing model of value, it was an interesting chat that I tuned into um, uh, on the New Models podcast a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago on um, the sort of diminishing brand power of American high street brands like Brooks Brothers, and maybe this is being a bit of a, a, a generational thing, like younger generations are more inclined to just go onto maybe AliExpress and pick up 
something that um, sort of has the style that they want, the style of the, the product kind of communicates to them, not necessarily, is, is that has the signifying power, not necessarily the brand name itself. So what are your thoughts on this in relation to copying? Yeah, I mean, I'm no, I'm far from an expert on this. Like my, the interest I had in copying, and I think for me, the first thing that comes to mind when you say, you know, China and copying, the I guess the um, the cliche is, you know, Shantai culture, which is, you know, an unauthorized brand replication and, you know, bad, badly translated slogans and this kind of thing. Um, I think my interest in Sinofuturism, I'll respond to the brand thing later, is this idea that not just the, it's not that the copy is superior to the original or that, you know, there's no, um, there's no substitute for the original or no one cares because, of course, you know, Burberry sells the most stuff in the Chinese market. Um, it's not about that, but it's more about an attitude towards the past, essentially, or the idea that the past is superior. So, of course, the brand is not just about the brand. It's what the brand represents. And I remember there's, um, was it the luxury watch company, Patek Philippe, is like, you never own one of our watches. You just keep them for the next generation. So it's more about this idea of like the aristocratic hand me down to the next generation thing this idea that there's a that there's essentially a um a multi-generation empire that this stuff represents i mean think about it you know for example what is it brooks brothers it's this idea it's the family if you think about like abercrombie was it abercrombie and finch it's like mm. you know you're part of the community it's like a family metaphor mm. so maybe the idea of like the brand decaying is not because you know there's some brands that have nothing to do with this family metaphor that are doing fantastically well um so maybe it's not all brands per se but it's ones that evoke a symbolism of uh ideal that's no longer you know no one i mean people care about family much less than they did 20 years ago amongst young people not just because they can't support them economically but because values have changed you know with the nuclear family and so on um so i think that's one thing um, but I think in relation to, I mean, you know, brand and the corporation and so on, you know, the corporation as a, as an, as a legal entity, as a legal person is a way to perpetuate, uh, perpetuate a legal body longer than the lifespan of an individual human being. Um, I think, is it, I think Graham Harmon uses this, the example of, the um, East India Company basically is, you know, a kind of like hyper object. I mean, nothing to do about uh, the philosophy, but just this idea as of the person that persists over a long period of time. So, of course, that's the corporation. That's the um, that's the aristocratic family. That's like Brooks Brothers. That's a brand. It's the idea of like a person that's bigger than any individual human being. Um, and I think that and you know artists are talking about you know non-human intelligence or slime mold life forms or you know ai as mm. post-human intelligence like i am and so on but this idea of a transference of uh i guess personhood status onto other things it's something that seeps into many different things you know which is related to value because of course what be what could be more valuable than a human life or a human like life which is, you know, it's fascinating. Um, and, of course, many other different, you know, artists and writers critique the same things from, from different angles. Yeah, that's great. Another aspect of the film is gaming, which is, is quite interesting. Uh, and it's something that, I guess, is a, is a bit of a theme in your work. I was wondering, we might have to wrap up a little soon, but I, I would be keen to know your thoughts on um, gaming, perhaps, as a little bit of a last point in our discussion. Like... In, particularly lately with coronavirus and the way we're socializing online, often through almost gaming platforms like Second Life, IMVU, Minecraft, are our social interactions getting gamified now? Uh, what are your thoughts on that idea and what could that really mean? Yeah, I mean, I think the dopamine feedback of gamification, it's a very, um, I don't mean it's a very exact science, but it's something that of course social media capitalizes on very much you know it's a dopamine rush of the stimulus response feedback loop that you get from getting a like getting a share 
um, getting a view even, or um, it's exactly the same. I mean, it's not exactly the same, but it is analogous to the response of being seen, right? Of being visible or of a kind of social interaction that creates a sense of, um, was it engagement or self-worth in the individual? And the difference is because, you know, I grew up in a world, in, in a youth of offline gaming, which is quite different. The stimu- the feedback loop, the dopamine addiction in offline gaming is quite different to that of online gaming because in general you're either competing against yourself or competing against yourself with a small multiplayer network um, that of people gathered in the same living room around a video game console. Of course that changed with LAN and network and online gaming so that the community is much larger and that brings a whole different set of um, social considerations because you know anthropologists some anthropologists have this theory that you know human beings have evolved to um, have a social mindset optimized for a community of around like 200 individuals Mm. you know there's many different studies of this like you know you only have like 12 close people in your life or you know it's like a global village but um I think the issue with gaming as well as with uh, algorithmic music is is quite similar in that when you're playing an online game, um, the information that you feed into the system, it's incredibly um, granular and finely detailed um, to such an extent, obviously, that your susceptibility to manipulation in these times is, is much lower because, you know, it's kind of like being drunk or being high or something you're much more susceptible to the power of suggestion and of course there's a science of you know with when might the um slightly insecure teenager want to buy a new pair of jeans it's like at a specific point in time um and you know i'm not completely dystopian about this but it's just the knowledge gained about about the individual is of a different kind of um i guess a different kind of resolution to it might have been in the past um, and I think, I mean, I'm no expert, but there are many, many different, let's say, market research companies from trend forecasters in fashion to Palantir, who is essentially, you know, trend forecasting and market research for, you know, political ends, let's say, that employ the best and the brightest to uh, to learn more about this kind of stuff. And it's, I mean, it's it's obviously fascinating as a sociological thing has lots of different dimensions where it's kind of um, has a potential for shifting into something else but it's also a kind of um, phenomenon that it's uh, I mean I don't use the word lightly but it's fairly unprecedented obviously you've been listening to AQMB's Artist Statement podcast if you'd like to hear more bi-monthly episodes like this one consider signing up to our Patreon at patreon.com slash AQMB Your support will help ensure the future of the series, as well as our commitment to presenting fresh editorial perspectives around art, music, and online culture at aqmb.com. Our theme music is Coughing Up Pearls by Felicita. See you next time.